the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seat. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Oh, really? Love is too weak a word. Stay back. I love you. I love you. I did as you said. Don't lie! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to The Shape of Water. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 96 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia, and joining me today, I have Josh Parm. Hello, hello. And... For all of those who missed him a few weeks ago, he's back on the show, everybody. Michael Schwartz. Back for a victory lap. Here we go. <laughs> there, the crowd cheers. The crowd cheers. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you back, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Very good. What have you been up to lately? Have you seen anything lately in the theaters? I have. Uh, I guess since the last time I've been on, it was two weeks ago, I caught up with Incredibles 2, which I thought was a blast. As someone who loved the original, it was great to see those characters again. Yeah, I actually liked it more than the first one, and I wasn't even that big of a fan. See, the first one is a classic to me, and I don't think this one was maybe on that level, but it comes pretty, pretty close, and I would definitely go see it again. Yeah, I think you and I need to have an offline discussion about what you think makes the original such a classic and maybe compare that to why I don't think so. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I'm very fascinated by why that film in particular resonated for so many people, but for some reason it never clicked with me. You know, part of it may be just growing up with it. I saw it when I was nine years old and watched it all throughout elementary school. That's true. I, I did see The Incredibles way into my 20s for the first time. I, I didn't see it when I was younger. Yeah, so that might have a little to do with it. But I also saw it again last week in IMAX right before seeing Incredibles 2 in IMAX. It was a double feature. Wow. And just seeing it again in the theater, I think it was one of the, one of the best viewings of it that I've had. It just clicked so well. Some of the themes that I may have missed when I was younger came together. It's an incredible movie. I saw that. I saw Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers documentary. Oh, wow. Which is, at this moment, my favorite film of the year so far. Would you say it is the early frontrunner for the Oscar for Best Documentary? Oh, I would have to think so. It just hits people on such an emotional level. If you grew up watching Mr. Rogers, which is probably a big chunk of the Amphis voting block, you know, you have everyone from boomers to millennials, because he was on from 68 to 2000. So that covers a pretty big uh, span of voters. But do you think it can last, you know, all, it's still pretty early in the year. Oh, for, for sure. I think they're going to have a push from Focus Features. It's not a small company behind this movie, so they're going to have some money going into it. It's doing great at the box office, and it just totally hits people where they want it to. And in this culture that we're in with so much hate going around in the world, this is a movie that just sends the right message that people are looking for. I think that's what's key uh, in terms of predicting it for the Oscar right now. It seems to me that um, for the last two years in particular, that is the kind of film that wins. It's, it's the message movie, and it's the one that's sending the right message. Yeah, for sure. I saw that. And then the last thing, and I won't go into too much detail about this one because I think Josh saw it also is first reformed mm. ah you both caught up on this okay yeah all right so i'll just say that i liked it very much more than i thought i would and it probably features the best performance ethan hawk has ever given i would say Oof. he's done a lot of good stuff but i think this is 
above and beyond for him. And speaking of awards, this is a movie I think, if it plays his cards right, could sustain itself until the end of the season and find itself in the original screenplay category for Paul Schrader. Yes, cosign. I 100% agree with you. That's what I thought about it. Josh, I'd love to know what you think. Well, I think, Michael, you liked it a little bit more than I did, which I'm kind of surprised by. Oh, I was totally shocked by that, too. Yeah, I thought that it was really interesting. Uh, I agree with you about Ethan Hawke. I think that it he is incredible in the film. And there are moments in it that I think where it is very profound and very interesting. There's also moments where I kind of feel like it's a little pretentious and kind of spinning its, uh, its wheels a little bit. Sure. One moment in particular, I think we're all thinking of the same thing. We're talking about the scene between him and Amanda Seyfried? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, overall, it was still a really interesting movie to watch. And I have to say that at the very end of the movie, I cannot remember a time where I was sitting in an audience that was just dumbfounded into silence. Like, the yeah, mo- yeah. that movie ended and nobody was rustling. Nobody was getting up to leave. Like, it was a full minute of just everybody sitting there in silence. So that's got to count for something. Yeah, we had silence in the finale, and then right when it cut to black, a woman in the audience shouted, what the heck? Yeah, at NYFF, when I saw it uh, back last fall, <laughs> it, it goes, it, it like, I'll never forget, like, it cuts to black, and I can hear somebody in the audience go, it better not end right here. And then the credits come up over the black screen, and then that per- same person just goes, oh, come on! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was so fantastic. I I loved it. Yeah. You know who's really great in that movie, aside from Ethan Hawke? Mm. Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, that was very surprising to see him definitely in a very non-comedic role. It was a very straight role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul Schrader has done that before. I forget the movie, but he cast Richard Pryor in a dramatic role years ago. Hmm. And he got tons of praise for it also. I'm blanking on the name of the movie, but uh, he has a history of getting these comic actors to play totally straight. And it works. Wow. Yeah, that's true. So this is a character that Ethan Hawke plays that's very much like uh, Travis from Taxi Driver. So it's in his same wheelhouse, but it doesn't feel like it's repeating anything. What about you, Josh Parham? Uh, besides First Reform, did you see anything this weekend? Uh, mostly I've been catching stuff at home and on streaming, just trying to kind of clear out my library there. Um Actually, I saw this one movie that is on Amazon right now, and I'm actually curious if you have heard about this, Michael. Uh, it's a movie called Rage and Glory. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, I haven't heard of it. It's um, an, it's an Israeli film that I think was made in the 80s, and it's kind of controversial because it's about basically like the freedom fighters in Israel at the time in World War II fighting the British, who they kind of felt was a little bit too sympathetic to... Uh, some of the Axis powers, and they were basically trying to fight for the creation of the state of Israel. And oh wow, yeah, and it was really, really good. I really, very much enjoyed it. I didn't know that much about the subject matter, but just in terms of kind of a really well put together movie, I thought it was very interesting. It had it actually reminded me a lot of Munich, to be honest. Oh wow, okay, yeah, it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now, and it's an actual Israeli film. Yeah, it was shot and made in Israel. Okay, that's really interesting to know because back in the 80s, there was cinema in Israel, but it wasn't as developed as it is now. So very interesting to know. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see. Yeah, I'd be very curious, Michael, to know what your opinion on that movie is because it's a very controversial film when I was reading up on it afterwards. So I'd be very interested to know your take on it. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have to look into that. Thank you. I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> Our apologies. Oy vey. My thoughts on that can be heard on the podcast review, which I, I, I won't spoil it, but I will just say I think it's my least favorite film of the year. Definitely, definitely in the bottom three. You know, Matt, I think your opinion has influence, and I'll tell you why. Because on Friday morning, I woke up, and I was going to go see Jurassic World. I, was, I got up, I was going to get dressed, drive up to the theater, and I looked at the clock. It was starting in like 30 minutes, and I thought to myself, do I really want to rush out of the house and see that movie for two and a half hours, or do I just want to enjoy my morning and do something else? And I decided that's what I'm going to do. So I have not seen Jurassic World yet. I don't know if I'm ever going to see Jurassic World necessarily, and I think a lot of that has to do with your negative reaction to it. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I did spend a huge chunk of my day yesterday watching Lawrence of Arabia, which I haven't seen in about 10 years. Wow. And I'm not going to reveal much because that is going to be part of our uh, exclusive Patreon podcast review for Last Best Picture. Josh Parm, you will be a part of that with me. Oh, yes. Um, let's just say that my second viewing of this, I can totally understand why it is regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films of all time. Where 10 years ago, when I first saw it, maybe I was a little bored watching it. Maybe the length got to me. I don't know. But I just didn't hold it in such high regard as I do now. So that's all I'll say about that because we do have that podcast dropping this week for anyone that subscribes to our Patreon account. And speaking of which, just to address the community out there right now, last week on the show I put a call out for uh, more diversity and more uh, writers and podcasters here at Next Best Picture. I can honestly tell you all that I have received over 50 replies. So there's a lot of work to be done. We got to definitely go through everyone and we got to see um, who will fit best over here. We really, really appreciate everyone that has reached out, everyone that sent us uh, a resume, everyone that wrote something. I mean, it, it, it was truly overwhelming and we really, really appreciate the enthusiasm and we want to definitely work with everyone. The reality is that we can't, but we're going to do our best to make sure that we give everyone um, an equal sh and fair shot. So I want to just quickly just say thank you for that. And let's um, actually keep it going right now in terms of the community here at Next Best Picture. And let's talk really quickly about uh, the polls. Let's get those out of the way for this week first before we head over into our main discussion for this week. So last week's poll, uh, tying it back to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, we asked everyone which is their favorite movie to feature dinosaurs outside of the Jurassic Park franchise. So none of the Jurassic Park movies were listed here as options. The options that were listed, though, were Connoisseur, Dinosaur, The Flintstones, The Good Dinosaur, Ice Age, Journey to the Center of the Earth, King Kong, The Lamp Before Time, Meet the Robinsons, Night at the Museum, Toy Story, The Tree of Life, we're back a dinosaur story and there was also a righted option as well so what do you guys think ultimately won this poll um <laughs> i'm probably gonna say toy story it sort of feels like it would be the default kind of winner yeah agreed okay top vote getter with 27 votes 
is the land before time. Mm. Really? You know, when you said that, I had a feeling that it might take it, but I thought that the kind of objectivity of placing Toy Story so high would have overtaken it, so... Well, Toy Story came close. It was in second place with 23 votes behind the Land Before Time's 27. And leading in third place was Dinosaur with 16 votes. Wow. Which, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Now that I see this here, was also tied in third place with King Kong. When you say dinosaurs, as in the 2000 Disney dinosaur? Yeah. I didn't even know people remembered that movie. Yeah, that's the most surprising thing is that people remembered that thing came out and remember anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty good. You know, I mean, it's not a bad Disney animated film, actually, when you think about it. It looked great for 18 years ago. Yeah, for its time? Absolutely. I remember seeing it in theaters. Uh, yeah. I just don't remember anything about the story. No, I don't remember anything about the story either. I do remember the trailer, though, for some reason. I Because I remember the music from the trailer. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think I might need to rewatch that movie. I don't remember anything really about it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's been a very, very long time. I don't think I've seen it since it probably came out. Tree of Life uh, landed in fourth place with six votes, and We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, rounded things out in fifth place with five votes. Well, We're Back made it into the top five, so I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> uh, this week, though, we're moving over to, to Sicario 2, Day of the Sedato, which is getting pretty positive reviews so far, mostly from what I've seen, holding on steady on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment, uh, so we'll have to see how that ultimately pans out. But this week we have uh, less choices. We only have four choices for people to choose from. And the question is, which is your favorite Taylor Sheridan screenplay? Hell or High Water, Sicario, Sicario Day of the Sedato, or Wind River? So by default, I'm going to have to go with Hell or High Water because it's the only one on the list that I like. But I do like it a lot, so that's not for nothing. That's fair. That's fair. I never did ask you, what was your... uh, what was your like, you know, problem with like Wind River? Out of curiosity, I just, I don't know. I didn't find it all that interesting, and I know it's not anything about how it's made or anything like that. I just didn't find the story that interesting. Okay, what about you, Josh? What would get your vote here? I would probably go with Hell or High Water. Also, um, although I'm kind of with you, Michael, that. I don't think that he's a bad writer, but his screenplays have not really captured me like they have a lot of other people. So when I see his name in the credits, I'm not generally the person that is jumping up for joy, you know, in anticipation of his work. So out of that, you know, very small group, I think I would go with Hell or High Water. I think that's a screenplay that's the the tightest and the most interesting. It's got the best characters. I would go with that one. You know what my favorite quality is about him as a writer? And it actually really didn't. You know, I, I didn't notice it until Wind River. I like the fact that his environment that he bases his story in influences um, the, the the plot and the characters. You know what I mean? It, it it gives his writing a more literary quality to it. I feel like. Oh yeah, I mean, I definitely think he's got like a feel of the settings that he you know, kind of creates for his stories. It's just for whatever reason that never has really pulled me in very much like it has with a lot of other people. Okay. That's fair. And I think he needs to do better in the future with his female characters. Oh, that's, that's a hundred percent definite. Yeah, there there is that. There is that. That is the number one biggest, uh, biggest complaint I do have about him. I mean, 
I know some people like to crap on Sicario. I I still think that that that's not like a poor, poorly written female character. I I, I don't know. I mean, I thought uh, maybe you know what it is. Maybe it's Emily. Uh, no, you know what it is. It, it actually it is a poorly written female character. I just think Emily Blunt's performance carries it through despite that. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, she does all she can with it. Yeah, there's yeah. just not much there for her to do. But in Rin River, Elizabeth Olsen pretty much gets sh- uh, shafted for the most mm-hmm. part. Hell or High Water, there really isn't any female characters to begin with. So, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's entirely 100% fair. I totally get that. Wind River will have the distinction of going down in history for me as not a movie I remember for what it's about, but being the last time I will ever see a movie in theaters that has the Weinstein Company logo before it. Oh, wow, that's true. I saw it September of 17, and three weeks later everything fell apart. Wow. So just a fun fact. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, JD. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father after all. (laughs) Yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not kidding? how this works, sir. Hey, no, you, you, no, no, you no. go cry at Midnight Special again, oh, okay? okay? That's what you're I good will. for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't buy works. that. That's just how <laughs> it works. Okay. Uh, so main topic of discussion this week, I want to move over to uh, some talking points here. For some reason, and, and it's crazy, these so-called quote-unquote fans of Star Wars have not shut up since The Last Jedi premiered in theaters last December. And I think that the release of Solo reignited this and gave it new life, which, you know, obviously probably helped to prolong this conversation. But we are so far removed from the release of The Last Jedi, I feel like at this point, and people are still going on about how that movie has ruined Star Wars for them. And it seems like this movement has gained so much traction that now Disney is kind of going back to the drawing board a little bit and they're choosing to put a temporary hold right now on any sequels and spinoffs and they're putting all of their creative energy and focus behind making sure episode 9 and the new trilogy that they decide to start beyond that, um, that's getting their attention at the moment. But it's kind of... It's kind of... (laughs) It's kind of infuriating when you think about it because, in a way, it almost sounds like these, you know, people, these Star Wars fans, have won by Disney making that decision. And now there's this talk about they're going to actually receive funding to remake The Last Jedi. I mean, (laughs) what is going on here, people? Seriously. You know, I have to admit that I'm very confused by what's happening with these fans because I saw The Last Jedi in December. I thought it was fine. I'm not a huge Star Wars person, but it was a well-made movie, I thought. 
And then I went away on vacation. I went to Israel for two and a half weeks. And I come back and check the internet. And it was like a fire broke out when I was gone. And people were going crazy. And I don't know exactly what they were going crazy about. I, I mean, I didn't know what they were going crazy about either. And now I think I've kind of come to realize what it is after Kelly Marie Tran had to delete her Instagram and so on and so forth. I think there's just a lot of misogynistic, you know, nerd culture males out there who cannot handle the fact that Star Wars is being more inclusive with female characters in the story. There's a bunch of loud trolls out there. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Ridiculous. I mean, then then there are some people who do make, I think, compelling arguments about how they handle Luke Skywalker's character. You know, how Mark Hamill himself had some questions about the way that the character was being represented and talked to Ryan Johnson about it and so on and so forth. I get I get those complaints. I understand those. But it can't be a cookie cutter for these people. No. And in the end, I think like the message of what the movie is trying to say is on point. I I, I listen, I you know, my complaints about The Last Jedi are more so for its technical aspects. Like I, I have a problem with the film's pacing. That's my biggest issue, first and foremost. It's the longest Star Wars movie, and it takes place over the shortest period of time. That's my that's my biggest issue with it. Everything else, though, I mean, I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand these people. Well, and I also kind of feel like even if you like thoroughly hated the Last Jedi, like from beginning to end, didn't find anything great about it, I don't really think that gives you any right to like demand the creators adhere to this very specific view of what you think the series should be. You know, I think that there are a lot of fans out there that have this weird ownership over the properties that they idolize. And that gives them this sense of entitlement that like, oh, I made this series what it is. If you don't please me, then I can shut you down. And and this doesn't belong to them. Like we can all enjoy the property. We can all enjoy Star Wars. But at the end of the day, it's it's the product of creators that are independent of us and we can choose to try to enjoy it or we can just dismiss it. But this idea that we need to be so invested and, you know, have these campaigns, I just find to be completely silly. Are you guys going to watch the last Jedi remake? Absolutely not. (laughs) I'm just curious. I, I, you know, I'm all for sometimes checking out things on YouTube like when somebody like recuts something to, I don't know, like as an experiment, you know what I mean? Like I, like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, but have you ever seen like uh, the Hobbit recut to be more like the book, for example, and they cut out like all the stuff that like Peter Jackson like added, like I don't know. There's stuff like that online that sometimes I watch because I'm curious, but this though this this has such a negative approach to it that I, I just don't want to. I, I don't I don't even want to support it. I saw a great tweet yesterday that said, here are my ideas for The Last Jedi remake, and it's a picture of Annie Wilkes from Misery holding a script. <laughs> that is perfect. Perfect. We're going to we're going to end the conversation on that note cuz there's no there's no coming back from that. That that that's way too perfect for words. Uh, let's let's talk about to our fans a little bit here. We had some fan questions that came in for this week's episode. I want to address those. Uh, so what do we got here? Uh, this one comes from Kevin underscore Jacobson. He asks us, what is your favorite lone director nomination? Well, that is a good question. You're going to have to come back to me so I can think on that. Well, the first one that popped into my head is Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher. 
Because I love that yeah. movie, and it still is bizarre to me that Foxcatcher doesn't have a Best Picture nomination in the era that it's in. But I just love Ben Miller as a filmmaker so much, and Foxcatcher is my favorite movie from him, and I love his work. So I wish it wasn't a lone director nomination, but as far as one goes, I really, really like that one. No, yeah, that's a great one. Um, that's also the most recent one, too. Yeah, and the only one that has ever happened in the expanded Best Picture era, which makes it even weirder. Yeah, thinking on it now, that was a year of eight. The movie got screenplay, director, acting. It really should have been in there for picture. I'm a really big fan of Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down. And the same year, David Lynch for Mulholland Drive. Like, that, to have two in the same year is, is pretty wild. Um, and both of those have such like creative vision behind them that I'm just glad that they were at least acknowledged. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Thelma and Louise also not get a Best Picture nomination? I thought he was a lone director I, for that one, too. I am yes. 99% positive, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. So my choice, the director is a little taboo, but I don't really care because I think it's still great work. My choice is Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it's absolutely profound. You have this fantastic Martin Landau performance, and I know Woody doesn't really direct his actors so much, but I think what he did with that movie in terms of pacing and more than just writing it, the way he actually crafted it was very impressive. Can I also uh, throw a mention out there to uh, Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot? <laughs> I mean, I, I, anyone here seen that? Long time ago. I saw ago. the Simpsons parody. <laughs> Well, the, the 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 amount of tension that he creates within that movie is pretty extraordinary, um, and that did not get a Best Picture nomination. So that that's a that's a good one that comes to mind. Right you know what away. another good one is? Yeah, what do you got from '92? Robert Altman, The Player. Oh yeah! Oh, I love The Player. That great tracking shot in the beginning. Mm-hmm. No, oh, that's phenomenal. That's a great call out there. Yeah. Also, I would throw out Paul Greengrass for United '93. Mm-hmm. You know, it is. Uh, like in hindsight, it's shocking to me that that did not get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, that was also a year of five. But that's also a film that's really, really hard to love. But it's definitely a film that's respected, and I think that's why the director nomination happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, and what's neat about that year, 2006, is that even though he got that director nomination, I'm not even convinced the movie would be number six on a Best Picture chart because Dreamgirls was not that year too. That is true. So United 93 was probably number seven. Yeah, and United 93 did get um, an editing nomination as well. It was Those were its only two uh, nominations it received, actually. Right. It didn't have screenplay. It didn't have acting. Not that there were so many actors to choose from, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Interesting year, actually, because then you could, al- you could also try to make an argument to me that maybe Penn's Labyrinth even. And Children of Men. Ah, man, Children of Men. That was a year. Yeah. All right. Good question, Kevin. All right, so what else we have here? We also have now... Oh, we kind of talked about this earlier. Uh, This one comes from Ian underscore Balakalak. What do you have as the front runner for best documentary so far? For me, it's RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Three Identical Strangers. Yeah, I think RBG and Won't You Be My Neighbor are the two big front runners. You know, RBG is really making bank. It is 
playing at my local art house still. And it's been there for about seven or eight weeks and it's still bringing in sold out crowds. Yeah, I will say this. Um, RPG is the kind of film that I could see making it all the way till the end of the year. But I have more I, I have more of a good feeling about what you be my neighbor being that film. Yeah, I, I do feel that there are some late breaking documentary films that will make a bigger push probably the more uh, topical ones about like world issues right exactly but rpg could do it i'm not writing it off just yet you know there's another one coming out next month that's been getting a lot of publicity called whitney about whitney houston yeah i've been hearing about which that. might fill the amy slot and then there's also i don't know if this is coming out this year if it's going to receive a the- theatrical release or not and that's called howard and it's about howard ashman the disney composer get out of here oh, yeah, yes I heard and it's directed that. by don Don Hahn, who uh, is a legend with Disney Animation. That's great. It premiered at Tribeca to great reviews. I don't know when it's coming out or what's happening, but you know everyone loves Howard Ashman. I saw Aladdin the Musical yesterday, and all the music in it, we have to thank Howard Ashman for. Yeah, I remember actually watching a documentary years ago that was about kind of the uh, creation of the new renaissance, you know, that 90s renaissance that the Disney Animation was going through. And there was a section about Howard Ashman, which was my favorite part of the movie. So to see a whole extended documentary about him is something I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. So we will see. This one comes from Andrew Purr. I like this question. I think about this question a lot. I want to know what you guys think. He wants our thoughts on giving a nomination or a win. To someone when it's kind of like that career recognition award versus the performances from that year that maybe stand out a little bit more and truly deserve it. I mean, the, hmm. uh, that's that's the age old question. And I was going to say, like, when it comes to the acting awards, I definitely feel that this is more of a thing. But I think this can be applied to every award when you really think about it. Especially in this day of the internet where people know who composers are, who the cinematographers are. You know, I mean, for goodness sake, Roger Deakins probably won last year partly because Blade Runner 2049 was a beautiful film to look at. But really, I'd say more than 50% of the reason why he won was because the campaign and the overdue factor was so huge. Yeah, but of course, that's an example of somebody winning for work that is actually deserving and not exactly a career prize, you know. But, but you know, I got to say this, though, about that. Do you agree with me that if you're nominated for an Academy Award, you deserve to win? Like, we may have preferences personally, and we also might have predictions based on who we think will win. But if any one of the people nominated did win... Not many people, like a very, very, very overwhelming majority are going to say, hey, you know what? They were nominated. They they deserve to win. You know what I mean? And I say this because I think sometimes what helps us to blur the line between subjectivity and objectivity is that narrative, that campaign. And it's that story that is told with that win. Um, a lot of people say that it's random, but a lot of times it's the story behind the wind that really, really matters. Oh, yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. That's basically what Oscar campaigns are built on. They're built on the narratives of the people that are involved and the movies that they're working on. Um, I don't know. Like, to say that anybody who's nominated deserves to win, I personally, I think is a little bit of a stretch. I think you can say that 
anybody who gets that nomination has shown some kind of strength within their field for some kind of recognition. But I mean, I think there are times where you can clearly see people get in and get nominated that kind of have coasted their way through there. You know, you look at their performances and, you know, I'm not going to mention one person because I know I'm going to catch a lot of heat from Michael if I do, but there's a certain actress that tends to get nominated a lot that, you know, maybe she could go <laughs> without one or two for some time. Does she happen to have the same initials as me? <laughs> Does she happen to have 21 nominations? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will name names like uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Joy and Denzel Washington and Roman J. Israel Esquire. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. They're not bad performances, you know what I mean? Like, like to Josh Parham's point, there is a, there is a quality about them. They may be the weakest of the field, but I can understand why the nomination happened, if that makes sense. But then the question is, do you think they are just as worthy to win Oscars as the people who actually did win? Like, is Denzel Washington just as worthy to win that as, you know, Gary That Oldman? depends on the story. That depends on the story behind it. And do I buy into the story? But should the story matter if you're just judging the performances? Do I think that Christopher Plummer deserved to win Best Supporting Actor for Beginners that year? Not really. But the reason why I'm okay with it is because of the story behind here's this legend, Christopher Plummer, who's in his 80s and has never won an Oscar before. And we want to recognize and acknowledge him. I could get behind that. I think it's it's okay to go with that as long as you sort of also attach it to a performance that is worthy and that or at least that you think is good cuz I think what can happen is if we start to say we're okay with this person winning an Oscar because they're old and we feel like they've deserved it for a long career if it happens for a performance that we don't think measures up to that level, then I think that's when people sort of get upset about it. Well, the it. performance has to be good enough. And my feeling is that if you get nominated for the Oscar, you are good enough. Think about all the performances throughout the whole entire year that you see and the ones that don't get nominated for an Oscar. Usually there's like 10 performances like in every category that are vying for those five slots. And if you get in... You get in, and that's not. And you know, listen. Do I think Denzel Washington deserved to get in last year over some other people? Absolutely not. Now, if he had a more compelling narrative around why he should have won, would I have gotten behind it? Maybe, maybe. But but he didn't, and that's why I just completely wrote it off, and I didn't care, and I didn't even think that he would win anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I understand that position. I, I just tend to think that for me, I want a little bit more of a harder line of the work deserving that kind of recognition. But that's but that's a very sub- subjective point of view. And then the whole thing is subjective. I, I, I'm yeah, trying to make uh, it, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make the stance that, that I think the Oh no no no, I know. I'm just trying to make the argument that I think that the campaign is what kind of pushes the argument into one direction or the other. Yeah, I can see that. What do you think, Michael? You know, I understand both sides of the argument here. Like, you want to reward people when they're actually giving a worthy performance. And then at the same time, you think, if they're here, do they want to win? Or are they worthy of winning? So, you know, it's a tough call. I think it all depends on the certain year and who the person is and what their history looks like, what they have coming up, or this is sort of the end of the road for them, you know? No, absolutely. I mean... Probably one of the best examples of something like this might be 
in recent time, uh, this is Sylvester Stallone, Mark Rylance uh, year. Yeah, that's a good example. Stallone had the campaign, but the campaign didn't work enough for everyone. You know what I mean? And that was like an example of where Mark Rylance had a cam- did have a campaign. Like a lot, like you know, a lot of people knew who he was. Very well respected actor coming from the theater. It wasn't as loud as Sylvester Stallone's campaign, but Sylvester Stallone's campaign for for him that year just wasn't strong enough to convince voters to vote for him in the end. You know what I mean? Um, for X, Y, and Z reasons that we could sit here and say we think we know what they are, but we really don't. And that's just that's just one of those great examples. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We could talk about this all day. I feel like because there were there were plenty of different examples of it. But uh, this, this this is a great question, one which I'm sure we'll continue to revisit every single year. Uh, let's see here. Next question at Captain underscore Hangry. What is your opinion on the 2003 Oscars? I'm dumbfounded as to how Chicago won Best Picture over The Pianist or oh Gangs of New York. Chicago was a decent on. musical movie, but I don't think it was worthy of 13 Oscar nominations. Okay. Michael, I want to just preface by saying this person wrote this without any knowledge that you would be on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't they pick a lucky episode to ask it on? Uh, Listen, of that year, 2002, of the films that are nominated, my vote would have gone towards Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, because everyone knows Lord of the Rings is my favorite movie of all time. Of course it would have. But in hindsight, knowing that Return of the King, if if I had a crystal ball and I knew Return of the King would win the next year and I had to put my vote for that year somewhere else, I too would have chosen Chicago. What we have to remember about Chicago winning over The Pianist is a few things. So, Pianist was obviously number two. Roman Polanski won director, and the film won screenplay. It also won actor. It had a lot of strength. But Chicago, when it came out, was like the first time a big live-action movie musical had hit since the late 60s. You know, this well, thing was wait a, a minute, wait a minute. Moulin Rouge was the year before, though, and that was no, a big hit. No, I'm talking hit. like a Broadway musical, a Broadway musical adaptation. Okay, okay, that's fair. Like, not since... Oliver, you know, mm-hmm. maybe something in the middle, but talking about big success with critics and awards and commercially, this was the biggest thing in years and years and years. So when that came out, there was such a stir around it. Like people were literally getting up in the aisles during screenings with the Academy and dancing. It was amazing what happened with this. So in the moment, it seemed like, of course, we have to give it to Chicago. There might be heftier material out there. But this is the movie that everybody is responding to. Now, I can understand in the years since if people look at it and go, oh, that was just a fun movie. I don't see why it won Best Picture. But for those of us who have a connection to it and really appreciate what this did to move that genre going forward, I don't see how you can give it to anything else if you feel that way about it. And also, too, just to give you know a little bit of leeway to those that are not in that group either, like the people that don't have that special connection to it, it's a populist movie that's very highly entertaining. Um, there are times where the best picture winner doesn't have to be a quote unquote issue movie. Now I don't now I know that in today's day and age, you know, that might be the case, it feels like. It feels like every best picture winner has to have some sort of an issue tied to it and it has to somehow scream important at the top of his lungs. Which I think is hurting us a little bit. And also, too, I think it's also making people look back at other Best Picture winners in the past, such as 
Chicago or something like maybe American Beauty. And they're make and they're going, wow, really? Did that really deserve to win? You know? And yeah. I, I totally understand the level of thinking behind it, but sometimes, hey, sometimes you get a gladiator. Sometimes you get a Chicago. And don't get me wrong, the pianist is a great movie, and I wouldn't be upset if it had won. It's just I don't exactly want to pit the two things against each other because it seems like one's the hero and one's the villain. Yeah, no, no, no one's a hero or villain here. I, I think that what ended up happening was was okay and it was right. Yeah, I agree. I actually think Chicago was the best movie of 2002, and I'm not even a huge musical lover, but I think what that movie did with the musical genre was really revolutionary at the time. Like nobody had ever seen something staged quite that way before and executed like that. So I think it's a fun movie. I really enjoy it. I still watch it to this day. Um, you know, I don't think Rob Marshall really delivered on anything on that level since then. But, at, you know, looking at it at the time and as a piece of work, I think it's really, really good. I very much enjoy Chicago. And you know what Chicago the movie did while we're on it just very quickly? The musical that's still on Broadway does not use the same technique of presenting the songs in Roxy's mind. That's something exclusive to the movie. So when you could take material that well-known and add a clever twist to it, that is truly exciting filmmaking in my mind. I want to stay with this Oscar year because we did get some questions in for Oscars So Right, which is where people send in Oscar winners from the past and they ask us to debate whether or not we think the Oscars got it right or not. And two of the suggestions that we received for this episode actually are from the same year. So, this person, Matthew St. Clair, we love you, Matthew. Thank you for writing in, as always, at FilmGuy619 on Twitter. He's asking us to, to debate whether or not the Oscars got right. Nicole Kidman winning Best Actress for The Hours. Hmm. So, with that year, it was a very strong actress lineup. You have Nicole Kidman for The Hours, uh, Julianne Moore, Far From Heaven, Renee Zellweger, Chicago, Salma Hayek, Frida, and Diane Lane for Unfaithful. I think Nicole is very good in The Hours. However, I don't think she's even the best lead performance in that movie. I would give it to Meryl Streep. But uh, for the nominees there, I think Julianne Moore should have won easily. I think that's her career best performance. And I think Nicole could have taken it a few years later for something else. But what, though? I only ask that because I look at the other nominations that Nicole has received since then, and she's never really come close another time. Then you have the game of taking away from another person, which I don't like to play all the time. But I would have given it to her for Rabbit Hole, but I don't want to take away Natalie Portman's Oscar necessarily. Right. So that's what's the whole thing. Not to mention, too, would you give it to Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven and for Still Alice? No, I would have given it to Rosamund Pike that year. So, okay, so Rosamund Pike, Julianne Moore have Oscars, but Nicole Kidman would not at this point. Or have an or, Emmy for or, Big or, Little Lies. <laughs> or, or would you give it to Nicole Kidman from Moulin Rouge and take it away from Halle Berry? Uh, I have to think about the year before. I would be fine with that. I don't like Monsters Ball at all. <laughs> you know what? To right the ship and to, you know, move Oscars around and shift things. I, I think that's what I would do too. Rosamund Pike, Julianne Moore, Nicole Kidman all have Oscars. Uh, but then, uh, but then you, 
Halle Berry doesn't become Halle Berry doesn't become then the first you know African American woman to win uh, the Best Actress Oscar then at that point, which is yeah, but you could have given it to someone else in the past. Okay, yeah, I, I, we'll we'll go down. We'll, no pun intended. We're gonna go down a rabbit hole if we keep <laughs> doing this. I guess you know I will say I would not give it to Nicole. Or Halle Berry that year, I would give it to Sissy Spacek. Fair enough. I mean, she was she was phenomenal in that movie. Um, what about you, Josh? Would you let Nicole Kidman keep her Oscar for the hours? No, I would go with Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven. I agree. I think that's like one of her best performances and totally deserving. And, you know, this is also the trouble when I think sometimes when you do the career prizes – Cause then you're trying to like move around Oscars for things that like people need to have it for this thing. But if you do that, then another person that you kind of think is just as deserving doesn't get it. And it's this whole musical chair thing that can kind of, mm-hmm. you know, go crazy in your mind. And sometimes I think you just need to pick the person that you think deserved it. And quite honestly, if that means that with in any given year that Nicole Kidman doesn't have an Oscar, you know, maybe that's just the way the chips are going to fall. Then, you know, pick the thing that you think actually is deserving. And then certainly for that year, I would say that was Julianne Moore. And the great thing about that is that Nicole still works. She's doing some of the best work she's ever done. And she will have a chance going forward to win our love and get an actual win from us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she's waiting for it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe it's a supporting actress win or something like that. Who knows? Hey, she has Destroyer this year. We'll see. We will see. That is a good point. Uh, For the record, if I was casting a vote, Objectively, I would have chosen Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven, but the idea that Nicole Kidman did not win the previous year for Moulin Rouge would be in the back of my mind. Ah, I don't know. I wish we had Ryan on the show today because uh, Nicole Kidman in the hours is his favorite performance of all time. I know. Oh, I know. And I, and I, I listen. I don't think he still listens to the show, but if he is, um, he's gonna definitely have some words for us. Probably. <laughs> I'm sure. We're sorry, Ryan. And Nicole Kidman is good in the hours. We're not saying that she isn't. It's just that there's a preference for another performance in that category. And if you can only pick one, that's just the way that we're going. Yeah, I think I would have gone Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven as well. Okay, one more. Keeping up with the same year. This one comes from Brian Susbilis, Cineman on Twitter. And he wants us to talk about the screenplay categories from this year because... The pianist that talked to her won adapted an original screenplay. One was a major upset, and the other was somewhat surprising, but a really liked film in the end. Um, would these have been your winners for this category? Do you guys feel like the Oscars got it right? I can't argue with them, but I wouldn't have voted for them. So my choices for adapted uh, would have been Chicago, and original would have been Far From Heaven. Oh, uh. What else was nominated that year? Because I just remember that the screenplay races that year were kind of all over the place. Because yeah, yeah. wasn't that the year that Bowling from Columbine won the WGA, I think? It was, yeah. It was a crazy year for that category. Here, so I have the nominees in front of me. Original screenplay nominees were Talk to Her, Far From Heaven, Gangs of New York, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and Itu Mama Tambien. Okay, yeah. I probably would pick Itu Mama Tambien for original. What about you, Matt? <sighs> Um, if I pick Far From Heaven, then Todd Haynes gets an Oscar. <laughs> um, oh, Jesus. I, I, I'd probably pick Far From Heaven. Yeah. And then adapted screenplay, you have The Pianist, About a Boy, 
Adaptation, Chicago, and The Hours. Adaptation. Yeah, I'd, I'd go Adaptation. That is such a wildly imaginative screenplay about the process of writing a screenplay. Um, it's so meta. Um, I, 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 I love quirky movies like that, so that would have gotten my vote. I get it. I agree. I'm going with Chicago just because of what that did with the material. Yeah, and I'm not going to yeah. complain about giving Bill Condon another Oscar. Yeah, no, absolutely not. You know what should have been nominated that year in original screenplay, and I'm still upset that it wasn't? About Schmidt. Mm, it's a good, good call out there. So Definitely underrated, Alexander Payne. Absolutely. Uh, but I love seeing My Big Fat Greek Wedding in there, which also, speaking of, makes me think about a movie coming out this summer, Crazy Rich Asians, which I yeah. think is really good. Yep, we we talked about that a lot when we uh, discussed its trailer a few weeks ago. Um, the question was brought up: Do we feel that if it's a big hit, if it could my uh, my big fat Greek wedding itself into the screenplay race? And uh, a lot of us seem to think that it could be. You know, it, it could happen for sure. It's it's something that we're definitely considering. The big sick did it. All right, now we have some uh, trailers to discuss. Let's move over now uh, to our first trailer. For uh, this episode, this trailer is directed by, well, the movie is directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring uh, Steve Carell. It's called Welcome to Marwin. Let's take a look. Hey, looking good. What is all of this? The world-famous Marwin, Mark's art installation. So that's the guy. Yeah, it's right up there. Some Nazi thugs jumped him. It's a miracle he survived. I was a hell of a good artist, and now I can barely write my name. So my dolls have to tell the story. At your service, mademoiselle. I just moved in across the street. I love all the details. <gasps> Who are they? They are Nazis torturing Hoagie. Why? Because he's different. The women of Marwin protect me. You are saved. A toast, just for you. Are all of the dolls people you know? Yeah. Everyone has a place here in Marwin. I just moved in across the street. So are you going to go to the sentencing? You're a suffering human being. I want these guys to get more than just a slap on the wrist. It's important that you're there to look your assailant straight in the eye. I'm not really sure how to do this. When are you going to man up and put an end to this crap? What are you talking about? We're one and the same, pal. If I can be a hero, so can you. Maybe the dolls should stay in the car. I never go anywhere without my backup. Learning to walk again. It hurts like hell. You gotta embrace that pain. I believe I've waited long enough. It's the only way Mark's gonna heal. I got your back, Hoagie. Bottoms up, girls. What do you think this is? The Indy 500? Go, go, go! More ammo! More ammo! Thought I heard you yelling for more gumbo. No, no gumbo. You gotta love the pain. Pain is our rocket fuel. My art, and I have my friends. I have hope, and I'll be okay. Hell yeah. That's kind of violent. But at least the Nazis are dead. 
Radio silence. Yeah. Holy moly. I don't remember who said it, and I apologize because I, I, I want to give credit, but I, I just can't remember. Somebody wrote on Twitter, and it was like my exact thoughts spelled out for me. Somebody said, this is the downsizing of 2018. I think it was Will. Will said that it looked like Sucker Punch meets Downsizing, and I said, with a little I Am Sam thrown in for good measure. Mm. This movie, I don't know what is going on here, but let me tell you, the one thing I do know is that when this opens Thanksgiving weekend, it is going to be ridiculed. I can make that prediction right now. Yeah, I think this is going to get a lot of hate from a lot of people and not even just for one reason there is so much going on here that looks like it will upset people whether it's just the look of the movie or Carell's performance or the way that these characters are used especially the female characters this is just going by a trailer so it could prove to be all wrong but i'm not getting a good vibe at all yeah i definitely echo most of those sentiments uh you know I didn't really know a whole lot about this story or this movie before this trailer, and I am just—I'm just very confused <laughs> as to how anybody thinks that the execution of this story could be anywhere near successful. It, it looks so bizarre, and I, I, again, you know, it's the trailer. It's hard to judge completely, but just from the materials that they are giving us, this looks like one of the biggest misfires that we could be seeing this year so i i don't know this looks this does not look very good to me now i gotta ask a question is this a a case where if a story is worth telling it's just the way that it's being portrayed by zemeckis i mean any story could be worth telling but it all is in your execution you know and i can understand the idea of like wanting to battle personal demons and finding ways to cope with that you know certainly but I think that there's just a way to do that that grounds your story in a more realistic way. And if you start to indulge in fantasy elements, that's a very tricky thing because you got to be really good at making sure it doesn't come across as hokey or, or cheap and or extremely manipulative. And I don't know if I completely That's what trust, this looks like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I completely trust Robert Zemeckis to do that, especially with uh, judging by this trailer. Yeah, it looks whimsical um, and almost like it's not taking the more serious issues seriously (laughs) you know i think that's the i think that's the biggest uh i think that's the biggest issue of all here i think he knows he has a dud on his hands and is bracing for impact because it was also announced this past week that he is directing a remake of the roald dahl novel the witches yeah yeah i saw that so there comes his big budget film Mm -hmm. to give him a payday after this do you guys think that this is like one of those movies where we're going to get like a gaudy scenario? Audiences love Welcome to Marwin, but the critics <laughs> do not. Because <laughs> I could very easily see this doing well at the box office and with general audiences. Oh, I think it's going to be a flop. I don't think that at all. Oh, yeah. I, I actually think this movie is going to tank. I don't think people are really going to go out and see it. Who's the audience? You know, you're not going to take your five and six year olds to a movie about a man who gets beaten up by Nazis. No, no, no. I understand. I understand that. I, I like to think of it like in terms of something like, um, uh, like collateral beauty. 
that's exactly exactly what it would be like but like there were so many people who saw it and they were like wasn't that such a nice movie and i'm like no <laughs> who? who saw collateral beauty I, I'm, I'm talking from my own personal life like there were like family members of mine who saw it and tried to tell me that they liked it and they, they couldn't understand why i didn't like it you talked to the five people who saw that movie in theaters <laughs> <laughs> all part of the neglia family hey hey <laughs> they had a family outing to the theater that was the whole box office hey, be nice <laughs> Nice. Hey, actually, I don't know where this money came from. Apparently, it made $88.5 million. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't even remember that happening. Maybe it was like my post-election haze. That's what I mean, though. Like, I, I could see Welcome to Marwin making bank and there being a group of people out there that are like, oh, that was such a nice movie. You know, they're not critics or anything. They're just people, you know, and... Uh, we're, we're, I, I can already tell we're, we're going to drive ourselves nuts with this movie, probably. <laughs> Well, at least they changed the title. They changed the title from uh, The Women of Marwin to Welcome to Marwin. Ugh, man. I don't think they could do anything to save this. Yeah, I also think it's probably an expensive movie, too, which isn't going to help its box office. Okay, second trailer. Hopefully we have more positive things to say about this one. This is the sequel to the film called Creed, which came out a few years ago, starring Michael B. Jordan and Sylvester Stallone. Got Sylvester Stallone a Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And this is the second film in that new franchise. Let's take a look. We got this. You heard me? In the ring, you got rules. Outside, we got nothing. Life hits you with all these cheap shots. People like me, we live in the past. You got people that need you now. You got everything to lose. This guy's got nothing to lose. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. Listen to me, this guy is dangerous. But you don't think I could beat him? I couldn't live up to these expectations. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty inside my DNA. You don't think you got your validation? I got loyalty, got loyalty inside my DNA. I got loyalty, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I want to rewrite history. Don't pretend this is about your father. I was born like this, it's born like this. Immaculate conception, I transform like this, perform like this. What shall you want to Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I, I am pleasantly surprised that the visual look and feel of the first Creed film is, it feels like it's being retained here. Because I thought that with a new director um, stepping in for Ryan Coogler, I, I thought that, that, you know, it could lose something there. And it might feel a little bit too um, disconnected. But I think the beats, the tone, and everything about this um, makes me remember why I like the first film so much. And um, that, that could all just be marketing. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually pleasantly excited for this where before this was a sequel that I wasn't necessarily looking forward to. 
Well, Matt, what do you have to remember about the look of the movie? Why it looks so great? Remember, it was shot in Philly, the greatest city in the world. It's going to look good regardless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael Schwartz, welcome back to the show. And that was just a given. <laughs> oh, man. I miss having you on here, Michael. <laughs> I'm so glad to be on the show today to talk about this, this particular trailer. Why is that? Because I just remember they were recently in the city filming it, and it caused such a hoopla. People were so excited to have Creed back. They were filming around Temple University and just different studios in the area. And it just sort of brought the city together like it did two years ago when they were filming the original, or three years ago when they were filming the original one. So it's just nice to have that same excitement again. And it seems like when the trailer came out, people around the world were excited for it too. Okay, so I I think that what I'm gathering from this trailer because they keep referencing how this is more than a fight. Like, this 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 fight is a big deal and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, it, it, it looks like, from what I could tell, like, the story they're going with here is uh, Dolph Lundgren, who plays uh, Ivan Drago, uh, years prior killed um, Adonis's father, Apollo Creed, in a boxing match, who was later defeated by Rocky in Rocky Four, I think it was. Yeah, Rocky Four, And it now looks like his son is going to be Adonis's opponent. That seems, that looks like the, the story they're going with here. But I don't know if that's going to be the whole point of the movie. That just seems like a, a small selling point that'll factor into it somehow, but it's not going to overtake the entire story. Yeah, I definitely think his personal life of being a family man for uh you know with tessa thompson and uh, looks like they got a kid now i I think that's going to also be a a huge point of the story as well it also looks like felicia rashad is going to have some more to do as his mother oh yeah 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 she was in the first one as well Mm -hmm. yeah so we always like to see her get some good work I'm happy to see that uh, ludwig uh, granson uh, i hope i'm saying that correctly is returning as the uh, composer uh, of the film after uh, you know doing the music for the first film, even though Ryan Coogler is not uh, directly involved in this one as the uh, director, I don't e- I don't even think he has a producer. Is credit. he producing it? No, he's not. Well, he doesn't have a credit under it. Um, I yeah, think he's no, he's a not executive producer on the film. He's got to be. I mean, I can't imagine him not being involved at all. Yeah, uh, I, I think he is like an, an EP on on the film. Um, you know, I just want to say that I'm somebody that wasn't a giant proponent for the first creed i thought it was a good movie i enjoyed it but i didn't love it like a lot of other people did and certainly going into this trailer i had slightly lower expectations especially knowing that uh, ryan coogler wasn't directing it but i have to admit i was pleasantly surprised by how well at least from a visual standpoint this movie looked so my expectations are slightly raised but you know, we'll see if it actually can live up to the level of the first film. I doubt it will, but hopefully it'll at least be a good movie. Can we all agree, like, the coolest shot of the trailer is him boxing underwater? Yeah, which is also a tribute to Muhammad Ali. Yeah, so awesome. Great visual. Um, the one thing that does give me pause is that Sylvester Stallone is writing the screenplay. Well, he's a pretty decent writer. You know, not everything he does has been a success, but he's done some good work in the past. Yeah, it's just that... I don't know. There's something about the fact that he's the writer. He also has more speaking lines in this trailer than Michael B. Jordan does. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel like 
in many ways, Sylvester Stallone had his time with the first Creed film, and I kind of was hoping that he would step aside a little bit more in this film and really let Michael B. Jordan kind of, you know, own it. Because it, it almost seemed like the first film was, um, like, they were, like, co-starring almost in a way. You know what I mean? Even though it's clear that Michael B. Jordan is the lead and Sylvester Stallone is the supporting character, his role in that movie looms large, you know? And I don't know. I just don't want it to. I just don't want Sylvester Stallone to be like holding on to the glory days like so much, like with this material. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of yeah, almost like a uh, like William Shatner with Star Trek, like kind of refusing to to let it go until the very bitter end. Yeah, like you know, you had your time in the spotlight. It's now time to let someone else like really, really, really take it on. I'm not saying that you don't have to be in the movie, but like the movie's not about you. They had a great opportunity to close the chapter after the last movie. That is my biggest complaint about the last movie. I, mm, that, I don't know. Am I, am, listen, I, I mean, I might sound morbid by saying that, but like, you know, did anyone else feel that way too? They didn't necessarily have to kill him off. They just could have ended it with that final shot of them looking over the city and have Rocky, you know, go off to, I don't know, retirement home or something. I don't know. Whatever he wants to do. <laughs> I just don't want, like you said before, like you have the late years of Sinatra where he starts forgetting the lyrics to his own songs. That yeah. doesn't have to be Stallone. Okay. Uh, let's close off the episode here with some news of the week. And let's uh, talk about it here. Okay. Uh, James Gray's next film, Ad Astra, getting a December Oscar release date. So we know that it's going to definitely qualify for this year. And some of the people that are tied to it, um, some pretty big, you know, big hitters here. I mean, obviously, we know about Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, Brad Pitt's production company is um, also uh, producing it. So you have the uh, the producing team behind 12 Years a Slave, um, Moonlight, Cinematography, Hoyt Van Hoytema. I mean, that's a big deal right, in, right there in and of itself. But I think probably the biggest deal of all is that we have seen that Thomas Newman is attached to the project as a composer and it looks like there was not official confirmation of it but it looks like from a few sources that he is involved but let's say if it was if it was this seems like a good opportunity for him to pull a roger deakins from last year bingo and matt was the one who started the hashtag after last year's oscar ceremony I did. After Roger Deakins won, I was like, now we got to get an Oscar for Newman. I started the hashtag Oscar for Newman because, listen, if all of our talk for Deakins could somehow bring, you know, build up that narrative and it could push him to a win, why can't we do the same for this guy? You know, I was starting to look ahead to this year's Oscar season and look at who the, contend- the contenders would be in both the major categories and the tech categories. And over in score, you have things like Widows and First Man, Mary Queen of Scots, and I'm sure they're all going to sound great. But Ad Astra is a space movie, which usually space movies tend to have great scores attached to them. And having Newman do it, someone who's really overdue, you have that narrative building for him. And I mean, like the the last space movie he did was Passengers, which is a movie that I definitely did not like at all. But But he got nominated for it. Yeah, his score for that was pretty damn good. So it's not like last year where you where you have uh, Shape of Water and Phantom Thread, which are both so great. And the year before, you have La La Land, which just swept everything. This year could sort of pull in something a little bit different. Absolutely. Yeah, what really is going to help Newman, I think, too, is in this age, like we were talking about about before, 
it really is more of an emphasis now on getting these below the line people, the kind of recognition and campaigns that they normally didn't really get very much. You know, I, I really do think, um, Kevin O'Connell has an Oscar because people finally remembered that, Oh, this guy who's been nominated 20 times hasn't won an Oscar. Let's give him one. I, I think there's more of a conversation now to get these below the line, uh, craft people, their fair recognition and, really putting together a strong campaign that's going to really help for thomas newman wasn't there like a a smaller campaign last year with one of the sound guys on dunkirk where it was like his final film and he had been like in the industry for like 50 years or something like that yeah one of the sound mixers on dunkirk yeah he that was the last movie that he was going to be working on so i mean he had already had worked out for him yeah i mean he had already had many oscars before that but that certainly helped with that narrative of getting that movie over there yeah i mean you know it's interesting because i get told a lot sometimes you know like i get i get like both sides i i get the whole your voice doesn't really matter in a pool of so many voices and then i also get people that say no, no no your voice really does matter because if you're saying it and then a bunch of other people start saying it, it does create this groundswell you know it's part of the reason why I think Tony Collette is going to get a Best Actress nomination for Hereditary, because there is a collective groundswell of people online that are all kind of like in agreement about this. The only people that are in agreement are the people that are just like, I don't know, horror film, you know. But everybody's in agreement that the performance itself is deserving. So if we eventually hear the score by Newman, you know, and and we're all in agreement that it's good enough man, let's push it. Let's let's make this happen, you know? I mean, this guy should have won at least two or three Oscars all, by now. Yep, yep, totally agree. And, I mean, he probably is pretty good for a nomination anyway because the or the music branch really, you know, respects the Newmans very much. And he'll probably get in, I feel like, but it is going to take more of an effort to just keep that name in the conversation to say, hey, this guy who's made all these great scores in the past hasn't won an Oscar yet – going on what that'd be his 15th nomination i think like let's maybe yeah. correct this and you know to bring it all home if he doesn't win for ad astra maybe he'll have his chance with the sam mendes movie there you go it's a good point all right and then finally last bit of news for this week and then we can all go who here liked les miserables that would be me <laughs> and it would not be me because word has gotten out that tom hooper the beloved Tom Hooper. Oscar winner Tom Hooper. Like I said, beloved, is going to direct Andrew Lloyd Webber's Broadway hit into a feature film, Cats. So, does anyone else want to take it or should I run with it? Oh, I think you should start. Yeah, I think this is all (laughs) you, Michael. (laughs) So, Cats. Where to begin with Cats? Cats ran on Broadway for about 18 years. And then was revived two years ago. So there is obviously a very passionate fan base behind it. I am not part of that passionate fan base. I think it's a musical that has some great songs, but there is no coherent plot to it. The book is sort of in shambles. So I think it's an interesting concept to put on film because you can have these stars performing great songs. But in order for that to work, it would have to be almost like a concert. So... I don't know how you really do it as a film unless you just have song after song after song and don't really rely on a screenplay. So on that end, I could sort of get behind an adaptation. But on the other hand, 
you know, what's Tom Hooper going to bring to this? Like, what's his connection to the material aside from doing one musical? So I can't say I'm passionately for or against it. It just seems like a weird mix. That's all I have to say on it for now. You know what Tom Hooper's going to bring to it? He's going to bring a lot wide of Dutch angles. camera angles, wide angles. Oh, yeah, baby. You know it. <laughs> yeah. Fisheye lens. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to remember about Tom Hooper, as strange as his uh, staging may be for some people, all of his recent films have won acting awards. That is a good point. So whoever's cast as Grizabella in this movie... I don't know if it's going to be Alicia Vikander or Anne Hathaway or one of his former people. Grizabella is the one who sings Memory, the song everybody knows. That's the money song from this show. Right. So whoever gets that role, I could see in a supporting actress lineup whatever year this movie opens. All right. Aside from that, I'm not really sure what to think. Maybe makeup or costumes. I think makeup is like an assured thing if they go practical. Yeah, I hope they do because CGI cats would not be worth anything hey well you know what though i mean listen they did the beast as uh cgi so well that was a little different because you have to do beauty and the beast like that you're not going to have you know emma thompson walking around uh dressed as a teapot cats is different yeah no no i understand that but i meant just for the beast character like that there's something about practical fur on screen you know what i mean it's like part of the reason why i don't like the movie but it's part of the reason why I, I still think like the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes film is so fascinating to watch. It's just a level of like detail in the makeup is astonishing to look at. And something like that would be I, I, I don't know. I just wish that practical makeup effect work would somehow bring itself back instead of relying on CG to create these on screen creatures that we see so much of nowadays. You know what I mean? Yeah. What'll be interesting about Cats is the appeal of the Broadway show was hearing the songs from Andrew Lloyd Webber and seeing these actors move around stage like animals. So if they could bring that same style to the movie and just have it rely solely on that, it could be something worth seeing. Watch, they announced that it's an all CGI film. (laughs) It's Uh, not live action. That wouldn't be Cats. That would be something Uh, totally different. It's like like CGI, like YouTube Cats. You know what would be funny? <laughs> Ever since Louis C.K. left uh, Secret Life of Pets after his troubles, what if they just remade Secret Life of Pets as Cats? Oh, somebody's probably going to do an internet mashup of that when the first trailer for Cats drops. You, you wait and watch. <laughs> but in the meantime, if anyone does want to see Cats, uh, there was a recording of the Broadway musical done in 97 or 98 and shown on PBS Great Performances. You know, it was shown on PBS for years and years. I'm sure Broadway fans have seen it already. But if you just want an idea of what Cats is, you can very easily find it streaming right now. All right. Uh, with that said, that'll pretty much do it for this week. Josh Parham, do you have anything before we go? Uh, no, it's uh, been an interesting week. I hope uh, to be seeing more movies again. And yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. What about you, Michael? You got anything? Same old. You know, I might catch up with a few things this week. Uh, I'm going to go see West Side Story through the TCM Fathom events. Ooh. So that'll be good. Oh, that would be nice. nice. That's my dad's big fun. screen. Yeah, that is my dad's favorite musical, so I might take him to see that. Yeah, it's uh, today and Wednesday, so anyone listening to this, you have a few more days to go see it. Uh, for this week, we have podcasts for Lawrence of Arabia dropping. Um, I have an interview with Thomas and McKenzie from Leave No Trace, which is dropping this week for its release this upcoming weekend. 
and we also have our first episode for the Emmys coming up pretty soon, which we plan to record so that we can start getting those Emmy nomination predictions underway. So we look forward to all of that and many more coming your way over here at nextbestpicture.com. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you, Michael, where can they find you? On Twitter at Mike Movie. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 96 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, St- Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and also on CastBox. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show. And also, too, if you would like... You can donate $1 minimum over to our Patreon page where you do get some exclusive podcast content. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.